Entrepreneurs, business leaders, and professionals who seek excellence. Bringing the business classroom to you. It's the Business Builders Show on the Business Builders Media Network. Here's Marty Wolf. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Business Builders Show with Marty Wolf, the show for entrepreneurs, business owners, and business leaders. I'm Marty Wolf, your host for the Business Builders Show, which is a production of Business Builders Media. You can get all our shows and podcasts from more great podcasters at businessbuildersmedia.com. This is where we give entrepreneurs and business leaders the tools they need to have their voices heard. That's businessbuildersmedia.com. My special guest with me today is Jawad Hassan. Jawad, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Marty. Thrilled you're here. We're going to be talking about Jawad's book. The title of that book is What They Didn't tell me and the subtitle is how to be a resilient leader and build teams you can trust uh, allow me to introduce our guest Jawad Hassan at age 29 he defined his north star he wanted to move up to the c-suite a year later he became a divisional CFO at GE healthcare and was soon promoted to be a GE executive by age 34, he was the CFO of a private equity-backed software-as-a-service company and by age 37 became the CFO of a publicly traded company, which is named Axon, A-X-O-N. As CFO, Jawad is responsible for leading the company's global finance, corporate strategy, legal and IT organizations, as well as Axon's cons- consumer-facing business. Listen to this last sentence, folks. During his tenure, Axon's market cap has increased from $1 billion to over $6 billion. Some things are going good at Axon, Jawad, huh? Yeah, that's right. We actually are, um, depending on the day, between 7 and $8 billion now. Wow. Yeah, folks, uh, I'll give you websites, Jawad's uh, website and Axon's website as we go through it, but um, both will be fascinating. So, again, welcome to the show. Uh, let's start this way. So the title of your book is What They Didn't Tell Me, How to Be a Resilient Leader and Build Teams You Can Trust. So you kind of hooked me with that, what they didn't tell me. So maybe that needs an explanation right up front, Jawad. Yeah, sure. You know, when I started to pull the idea for the book together, I had all these notes and presentations on leadership that I'd given throughout the years. And the bigger the audience has gotten, the more of a positive reception I got, people started to suggest, you know, you should write a book. And I started to outline the book. And one of the things I did initially very early on was to organize the, uh, the chapters into, uh, and you'll see it in the book that they're all basically pieces of feedback that I got. They're things that people said to me. Yeah. And in some cases they were pretty harsh. They were, they were a little (laughs) tough for me to hear. Yeah. (laughs) You know, at the time, it was it was tough for me to hear, but what I learned over time and, and with experience was that there was a really important lesson in there. And that's why the title of the book is "What They Didn't Tell Me." It's really the perspective that I gained over time, and it's it's uh, you know what they did not say that was really where the lesson lied. Yeah, speaking of lessons, um, so you start out the book by telling us kind of a scary story that's connected to the SEC. 
Um, that was a hell of a way to start the book. Got my attention. Maybe you should tell us a little bit about that before we get into, well, in addition to that, because I think the rest of the book kind of, uh, uh, kind of relates to that. So how did you start out the book? Kind of give us a quick story of that. Yeah, it's, it's great that I can sort of laugh about it with you now, but at the time it was pretty scary. I was a you know, new CFO. It was my first public company CFO gig. And uh, you know, a few months into it, I wake up one morning and there's all these boxers. We have this uh, internal messaging app called Voxer and text messages and Slack. Everyone's reaching out to me saying, hey, what's going on? Why didn't you respond to the SEC? And I'm like, what, what are you talking about? And it was all over the news that... Uh, Axon CFO was ignoring the SEC, NPR up, and there were all these articles, uh, you know, courts, and everyone, the, the headline was, which of course is going to generate clicks, was that Axon CFO was ignoring the SEC intentionally. <laughs> and that's that's not what happened. Um, when I first started at Axon, the previous CFO left very abruptly, and he was the contact that was registered with the SEC, and they didn't update the the, the contact to me. And so when the SEC had some questions, and they're fairly routine questions that they ask public companies, especially around our revenue recognition, we've got a fairly complex revenue model. Mm -hmm. He had reached out to the previous CFO. He was no longer there. His email bounced back. So they called in and they called into the front desk of our headquarters. And as you might imagine, there are a lot of people that call in trying to get my attention or Rick, our CEO's attention, trying to sell us stuff. And so the admin said, sorry, I'm not putting you through to him. You can email him. And they said, well, you know, we did email him, but, you know, we haven't heard back yet. And they said, we really like to, to talk to him. And, they, and, and the person at the front desk said, nope, not happening. So they were emailing me over the course of several months. And just like people call in trying to sell us stuff, I get a ton of spam. And I, you know, when I, when I first started at Axon, they'd sent out press releases and my name was out there. And all these people were reaching out to me trying to, again, you know, just wishing congratulations, but also saying, I'd love to talk to you about you know, this product I want to sell you. Right. And, and so that uh, I was just getting inundated with all this email and my IT team put a more aggressive spam filter and the emails from the SEC, because the person who sent them their name, whatever uh, the, the name that they went by was different than the name in their actual email address. And there was no text in the email. It was just a email with an attachment and the attachment was a letter. There was no text mm -hmm. in the email. Mm -hmm. The spam filter sent it right into, into clutter. And the morning I woke up, I go and do a search. And sure enough, there are emails and, and letters from the SEC asking me to respond. <laughs> uh, they call that on the business. The shit hits the fan. That's right. Uh, <laughs> That's right. Um, well, you went on the book. And uh, obviously, uh, when you're a new CFO of a publicly traded company, you certainly don't want that to happen. But um, you shared at the beginning and you shared through the whole book uh, kind of like lessons you learned and how your team stayed with you. So we'll get through all of that. Um, you refer to something called your North Star. I think it was in your introduction. So maybe we should explain or you tell me about your North Star. Yeah, absolutely. So it really came about probably about eight years or so into my career at GE. And I talk about this in the book, how I was just, you know, I was working really hard and keeping my head down and waiting to get tapped on the shoulder for the next gig. And that's typically the way it worked at GE. If, if you worked hard and you did a good enough job, then people would take notice and they would pretty much define your career path for you. And I took a role at GE Capital working for uh, an old mentor of mine. And at the time I was GE, you know, it's a little different now, but it was used, it used to be divided into industrial services where they made products like jet engines and power turbines, et cetera. And then the financial services 
business and they were completely separate worlds. And I took my first job on the capital side for this mentor. And then a month or two into it, he leaves and he goes actually back to jet engines. And now I'm in this completely different division of GE with no network at all. I didn't really have a brand. People didn't know me. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like, look, this is, I, I was pretty frustrated. I felt like I was starting from scratch and I kind of scrapped all the goodwill I'd built. And I realized that the, the problem for me was that I was, I was waiting for other people to define my career for me. Mm. And what I decided to do at that point was to define my own North Star and just basically uh-huh. figure out what is it that I want to drive towards. I don't want to end up where other people want me to be. I want to be what I want to be. Yeah. And what really excited me was this idea of running a business. That that was my North Star. It was not necessarily to be a CEO, you know, or a president or a GM. It was really to run a business. That's what really excited me. I like I'm an operator. That's mm-hmm. what I'm passionate about. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the proxy for that was, you know, a CEO. Uh, but really, it, it was running a business. And so I, I worked backwards from there and said, okay, for me to be a CEO, what's the fastest way for me to get there? And I, I looked at, do I maybe take a bunch of cross-functional roles and get experience in sales and marketing and operations, et cetera? Or do I rise to the top of my function and then make the leap over? And I, I'd looked and it's a little tough, but you know, it's, it's becoming more of a, uh, a tried and true path where a CFO does end up you know, becoming a CEO. Right. And that's what I decided to do was to just stick with my function and uh, try to get to the top of it. And so working backwards from there, from a CEO, the next role was a CFO and if, you know, a standalone CFO of, a, you know, of, a comp- of an entire company is much different from a divisional CFO, but I felt like a divisional CFO would be a good stepping yeah. stone. And so that's why you know, I really held out what, what changed for me there, Marty, was I got really picky about what roles and opportunities I took. And yeah. Previously, I, you know, I would have, prior to defining my North Star, I would have taken a job if it came my way, if it meant a bigger title or more pay, more responsibility. And I stopped focusing on all of that. And I started focusing instead on experiences. And I got really picky about, I'm only going to take a job if it gives me the experience that I need that's going to keep me on my path towards my North Star. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Great story. You've set that up real nice. Um, so... You share with us, and I wanted to come back to this a couple times, so maybe I should have prepared you for this question, but you wrote it in your book, so let's talk about it. You share with us in the book that you look, feel, and talk like the new and increasingly diverse demographic. You, that meaning you, Jawad, are a Pakistani-American, the son of two immigrants, and a practicing Muslim. Why do you feel that that's an important point to make in your book? And I'd like you to make it now. Yeah, there are two reasons for that, Marty. One is I want to let people know that don't fit a traditional mold, whatever, you know, whatever that people think that traditional mold is, Mm -hmm. that you're not precluded from the C-suite. You can be a CFO, CEO, whatever it is that you want to do. You can do it just because... If, if you're in your current company and you look up and you look at the executive team and you see predominantly white males, that doesn't, and you're not a white male, that doesn't mean that you can't get there because mm-hmm. the world is changing very quickly, especially, you know, in America, our demographics are changing. Mm-hmm. And really, this is one of the, the great things about our country is that it is a meritocracy, right? It is, there is an opportunity for everyone, assuming that you perform and assuming that you are able to bring to the table everything that needs to be you know, delivered, that you, you can. I'm not trying to pretend that there aren't barriers. There certainly mm-hmm. are. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
I have seen over and over again um, that, you know, if, if you can demonstrate that you're really good at what you do, that there are going to be opportunities for you. Okay. And, and, and look, at when I was first starting off at GE, uh, Jeff Bornstein was a CFO at GE Plastics. That's where I started. He ended up becoming the, CF, the CFO for all of GE. Mm-hmm. And one of the things he would tell us when we were the, the fresh college grads was when he looked at his career and how it unfolded, 80% of it was luck and 20% of it was what he actually did, like his own artwork. And I can tell you, based on my experience now, that is absolutely true. A lot of <laughs> yeah. you know, a lot of what happens are the opportunities that you're given and certain breaks that you catch. And, you know, a lot of it is luck. But sure. that 20%, what that means is you have to be super prepared. You have to be, you have to work harder. You have to be better prepared than the next person so that when your opportunity does come up, that you're able to seize it. And then the other reason I talk about this in the book is I want other folks to know that are looking for leaders to fill certain roles that you don't have to stick with the try true. I know it's, it's human nature to hire someone that, you know, looks like you, that grew up like you has a similar background, but that doesn't mean that someone else isn't as qualified for the role. And one of the reasons I talk about this is when I left GE, GE is a very diverse company, but it was only diverse at certain levels. And the higher up you got, the less diverse it was. Yep. Yep. And that's true today, right? You look at GE's section 60, yep. it's not really all that diverse. And then when I went to the private equity world and, you know, I, I worked at a private equity backed company and I got to know their leadership and we did, we bought 10 companies. We did a lot of M&A in, in my time there. And I got to see other, you know, private equity companies and other, um, you know, portfolio companies. And it was, it was very homogenous. And I think there's just this familiarity, you know, you go look at a lot of private equity firms and look at their investment teams and a lot of them you know, kind of look and feel the same. They went to Harvard or Stanford for their MBAs and maybe they went to Wharton, right? But like, it's it's not a very diverse group of people. Uh, yeah. I think that I think that's changing, right? It, it's going to change yeah. over time. I think it also needs to change. And that's part of what I want to try to drive. Yeah, and uh, great point. And the, we'll call it the facts or the evidence is kind of coming in, Jawad, that diversity to be crass pays. Um and we should be doing it for the right reasons, but uh, there's financial reasons for doing this. And, and that data and that evidence is kind of coming through. So That's I'm right. saying that just to support, you know, what, what you've said and what's in your book. So tell me more about your career at GE and maybe share some of the stories. But one that I, I, I'd like for you to refer to as a, I guess it was a chapter. And, and, and someone said to you along the way, be a leader this week, be a leader this week. What was the circumstances around that? And what, 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 what was meant by that? Yeah, that was something that to this day still sticks with me. It was a, uh, actually another Holy Cross, a Holy Cross graduate uh, who was further in his career at GE. And I, I really looked up to, um, he approached me as I was starting. It was, it was basically the orientation for this audit staff program. That was like this super intense accelerated leadership development program. It kicks off with this week long training and there's a lot of excitement. You know, you have all these people that are in their young 20s and, and are really looking to, you know, be world beaters. And uh, he came up to me at this conference and was like, hey, you know, you're starting off on your career here. I want you to be a leader this week. And I just kind of looked at him like, you know, I kind of smiled like, okay, like, I don't know what that means. Right. <laughs> yeah, what does that he, mean? <laughs> like, no, he, he just, he looked me right in the eye and said it again and, and sort of, you know, put his finger in my chest and was like, be a leader this week. And I it really made me sit up and, and pay attention. And I, I didn't 
really understand at the time what it meant. But what, what I've come to understand is that being a leader is a choice. A lot of people just assume that they get a certain amount of experience or they get a title and that they're automatically a leader. And that is the furthest thing from the truth mm. because you can give anyone a title and you can give anyone, you know, a level or, or a sort of set of responsibilities. And that doesn't mean that people will want to be led by them or want to listen to them. And I've seen this, right. I've gotten to a point in my career now where I've seen enough leaders mm. that act that way where they just assume that, okay, well, I've got this title. I earned this and now people are going to listen to me. And really where I see that, fall down is when someone's a micromanager, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and this is why I am very, very much against micromanaging. I just read Bob Iger's book, uh, the former CEO of Disney. Yeah. Yeah. He talks yeah. about, he actually is a micromanager and he was, you know, giving a, a bit of an impassioned plea for micromanaging. And look, Bob yeah. Iger is a, you know, a very successful CEO. Yeah. So I think he found a way to make it work for him. Uh, for me though, like what I've always thought about is people, you know, in the workplace, they make big investments in themselves. They, they go to college, they get advanced degrees, they take courses, they, you know, do all the LinkedIn learning classes, they work on their own executive presence, they get executive coaches, right? People really care about themselves. When, when folks work in corporate America, by and large, a lot of people make investments in themselves. Mm -hmm. And one of the most demotivating, thing, demotivating things that you can do is to not only tell that person what to do, but how to do it. Right, exactly step by step how to do it. Right. That's why my, my leadership philosophy has been more around I want to give someone a broad objective and let them figure out how to do it. Right. And what I've learned is that okay, look, people are gonna make mistakes and they're gonna fail, but that's okay. Right. That's that's all right. You that's how they learn. And ultimately that's what I think has made me the type of leader that people want to work for and that gets high performing teams is because I've learned, you know, to really be a leader, you have to trust people. Yeah, and that's we're going to get into that a little more depth. I want to make sure everybody knows who I'm speaking with. Jawad Asan, his name is spelled J-A-W-A-D. His last name is A-H-S-A-N. Jawad, how is the best place? Yeah, excuse me. Best place for people to reach you? Websites, LinkedIn. Where would you suggest that people reach out to you? I think yeah, the, the easiest way would be if you go to my website, jawadasan.com, and uh, there's a, a way for you to contact me there. All right. And again, his book is What They Didn't Tell Me, How how to Be a Resilient Leader and Build Teams You Can Trust. So, uh, again, I read the book. Uh, a foundation for your journey um, is what you call uncoachable traits. Uncoachable traits. So the first thing is, tell me what do you mean when you say uncoachable traits? And then let's talk about what they are briefly, okay? Of course, yeah. So this is, again, something that really I developed over time, this notion that there are things that you can – there are traits that you can coach in people, okay? So if someone is really good at generating prodigious amounts of work output and they just have trouble consolidating it or condensing it in an executive format or they have trouble – you know, maybe they, they're nervous when they're public speaking or they can't prioritize correctly. You know, even something like intellectual curiosity, I've learned that if you just give someone a, a blueprint or a path for like how to ask questions and how to frame problems, then mm -hmm. you can also coach that. Those are all traits that you can coach. Mm -hmm. okay? mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there are traits that you, I have learned that you cannot coach and you will waste your time trying to coach those things into people. And they are a strong sense of integrity, someone who knows clearly knows the difference between right and wrong and doesn't take shortcuts. Uh, someone who has a strong sense of accountability, 
not just personal accountability that they hold themselves accountable, but they hold their teammates accountable and they prioritize, you know, really the success of the team over them, over the, their own success, which leads to the third one, which is collaboration. Someone who is a team player, right? Someone who understands that we win and, and succeed as a team. And then the fourth one is a strong sense of positivity. And I catch some flack, Marty, for this last one, because people have said, uh, you know, I'm a realist. I'm not an optimist. And to me, (laughs) if you look at the spectrum of optimism, it, to me, it comes to a, a very sharp point. And the reason that's important is when you face adversity, you either trend towards positivity or you trend towards negativity. And that's really important because when you're in a period of adversity as a team, are you the type of person that's going to roll your sleeves up and really see the challenge and, and want to embrace it? Or are you going to gripe and are you going to complain? Are you going to blame others? And th- this is what I've learned is that, you know, the people that are on the negative side of the spectrum, uh, they are the ones that end up being very toxic for your team and for your culture. Yeah. They make, they make cave too early. And uh, yeah. And you, you need to have that positivity, I guess. So on page 55, I'm going to test some of this, uh, Jawad. So again, you wrote the book, you'll be ready. But on page 55, you say, when you identify someone on your team who has a lack of integrity, you fire them on the spot. (laughs) That sounds pretty harsh, man. Do you really believe that? And can you tell us about a time when you acted on that belief? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Um, So the thing with integrity is that no one's going to sit there and tell you, yeah, I just, I don't, I don't have integrity. I'm not going to, I'm not going to buy into that. Everyone thinks that they do, or, or at least they're going to put on the, you know, they're going to give off the perception that they do. Okay. And I, every time I, I join a new team or actually even with my existing team at Axon, I've probably given this speech, you know, three or four times just because we've had some new members and I'll, I'll put these traits out there and I'll tell them, look, if, if you embrace these traits, I will trust you and you're going to have a really great time. You're going to be very fulfilled and rewarded working on my team. And if you don't have these traits, I'm going to sniff that out. I'm going to eventually figure it out. And then I'm going to get you off my team. It's, it's pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. And the integrity one for me, uh, when there is a very clear lapse, I, I do, I do walk them out the door. I talk about it a couple of times in the book when you someone tried to hold me hostage yep. about, you know, an, an MBA, uh, yep. there was someone who, when I, I learned, I had gathered my evidence, obviously I didn't do this on a whim, but I gathered evidence, evidence that they had created a very toxic culture and they were using derogatory terms, uh, misogynistic terms, you know, very sexist terms towards other female employees. And I gathered this evidence and then fired them. Um, you know, th- luckily, those are few and far between. The integrity lapses are, are few and far between. But when it happens, then I, don't, I have zero tolerance for it. Yeah, once, it's, once the evidence is clear. And I've, I've been around CEOs that really struggle, you know, with that firing aspect. That's why I wanted to ask that question. I'm in total agreement with you. Once it becomes clear and the evidence is clear, uh, stop wasting time. Get it over with because you're only hurting uh, the, the common good, if you will. So um, over your time, at uh, over your whole career, you've had your share of bosses that uh, kind of give you some uh, negative feedback. And it, and it looks like you often reacted to that feedback and you and you talked about this earlier but over time i guess you again i guess this relates to your north star uh, that early criticism you kind of reacted to maybe negatively but things changed right that's right and yeah I, I talk about this in the book how one of the things that i i think i think i've got a lot of room left to grow and to improve but i, I think one of the things that makes me an effective leader that people like to work for is that 
I am empathetic. And I, I don't just look at those managers today, the ones that gave me the tough feedback as, you know, people that were standing against me or obstacles. And, you know, I, I really view them now with empathy. I, I understand they had their own challenges and look, maybe they had their own flaws and they were doing the best that they could. And here I was, I was pretty confident in myself and, you know, maybe being a little uh, difficult. And I've, I've come to learn with, the, you know, with experience and time that uh, they were doing their best and the, the types of challenges that they may have felt with me, I've now seen them being on the other side of the table. And I think yeah. more empathetic leader. Yeah. More empathy. Well, you alluded to this while you're, while you're speaking. And, and, and uh, so sometimes and any of anyone who has had some success, sometimes we might get a little full of ourselves when we start having some experiencing some success. Um, you kind of talk about that. This might be dangerous for, for our careers. Talk more about that. Yeah, th- this is an interesting one. I think a big part of why I've had success in my career over the last few years is that I have gained a lot of confidence. And that's something that's really important when someone is looking uh, to fill an executive role, right? When they're looking to, when they're looking at you and trying to see, can this person be a C-suite executive? One of the first things that they want to see is confidence. Is this the type of person that's going to instill confidence and inspire confidence in their employees and the rest of the executive team and the board, maybe in investors or shareholders, right? That's a really important part of it. So you, you've got to be confident, but mm-hmm. you can't be overconfident. Yeah. And, you know, another thing I've learned over time is that confidence has to be hard won through experience. You, you yep. can't just wake yep. up one day and decide, you know what, I'm, I'm going to be confident. I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to change the world. Like it doesn't work that way. And this is why experience is really important. You've got to have seen, and this is actually why I talk about with the MBA, the MBA is really valuable the longer you wait in your career. It's the same thing with confidence. Like you've got to build that over time. You can't just, you know, decide that you're going to be confident without the experience because then you're just cocky. Yeah. Say that again. Your experience, the MBA, tell me that quote again, that the, it becomes more valuable. What was that? quote again? I, you know, I wanted to get my MBA. I wanted to go to GE when I first graduated college for two years and then leave and go get my MBA. And I kept staying at GE because the job that I had in front of me offered me more than I thought I could have learned in the classroom. And then, you know, I eventually reached a point where that stopped being true. I I got to a divisional CFO role. I spun off this business into a joint venture and I work with all these external bankers and, you know, lawyers, et cetera. And I realized, you know what, I'm not going to learn everything I need to know about business and about being a finance leader within the confines of this company. I need to augment my education. And that's where an MBA started to make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, now, so I, I went and I got it um, about a little over a decade into my career and, and I did an executive program mm-hmm. and it was great because while I was doing the program, I could come back at work, you know, come back to work on Monday and apply the lessons that I learned. So yeah. I feel like I got a lot more out of it. And even now I'm, I'm six years removed, almost seven years re- removed from my MBA. I wish I could go back now with everything else I've learned since then. Mm. Uh, so I think, you know, and look, there were people in my class uh, I did the executive program at MIT. The average age at the time was uh, just about 40. And I'm, I'm 41 now. Like I, I could totally see there were people in my class that were, you know, in their fifties and older that mm-hmm. were doing MBA. And I look, I think at some point, if you're on the tail end of your career, maybe it's going to, you're going to see diminishing returns, but I do think you're better off getting your MBA in your you know thirties 
40s than you are at 25. At 25, you just haven't seen enough. You haven't you haven't seen enough business cycles to really get a lot out of it. I think that is such such great advice. I think that's absolutely profound. Um, you spend a lot of time, and this is uh, again, there's so many points to make, but uh, I know this is vitally important to you. So let's go a little deeper on this one. You tell us to hire people we trust. Here's an important part of this. No matter what it costs, hire people we trust, no matter what it costs. There are some people are shirking from that already. So you you may want to explain that and what you did, Joad. Yeah, yeah, I believe this with full conviction, Marty. Um, you cannot overpay for really good talent. And I've, I've learned this mistake the hard way. I talk about it in my you know, private equity role that I had. We had a lot of financial constraints. And uh, so I, let me back up for a second. The GE was a little easier because GE used to have this sterling reputation and this sterling brand. And it was fairly easy to attract talent into the company and even yep. to get them to take less pay. At this private equity back company, no one knew who we were. No, you know, no one knew us. And I would reach out to folks, and people would say, "Oh, that's interesting. Good for you. You got a new gig." But I have, I have no interest in joining a company I've never heard of. Yeah, um, you know, and it was, it, it was tough to to get good talent. And what I started to do was hire people that were, um, because I had these budgetary constraints, I would hire people that were earlier in their careers that didn't have enough experience. And I figured, you know what, I'm just going to make a bunch of bets on people like myself that were younger and up and comers. And it really worked against me. You know, one thing I don't have is a CPA and I needed a very strong controller. And I tried to get a controller on the cheap. I had four different controllers in three years. It just completely backfired on me. Um, And now, you know, now at Axon, when I, when I first got here, one of the first things that Rick, our CEO, uh, he and I talked about when I joined was, look, I want to build my team the way I want. And I, I don't want to have to worry about budget, right? I want to go build a team that I want. And And he gave me the, green light to go do that. He has a very similar philosophy as well on talent. Which is yeah. so um, and I can tell you that, you know, it's, uh, it's not only enough, like you've got to make a very attractive offer to that person coming in, but once they're here, you have to, you have to do things to, uh, to keep them happy. Yep. And what it can't yep. just cash. Like I do give cash rewards and you know, all that on a fairly regular basis, but uh, you've got to find ways to keep them engaged. Yeah, so we look for those uncoachable traits right from the very beginning, and then uh, when you bring them on, you you treat them accordingly, you reward them accordingly, and uh, I guess the proof is in the pudding, as they say. <laughs> There's some some growth that at Axon, so it's kind of work uh, for you and for the uh, company. Um, Marty, sorry to cut you off. One thing that is important, I, I don't really talk about this in the book. I actually have I have two more sketched, I have two more books sketched out, so I'm going to talk about this in, in the sequels, but. One thing Go I ahead. don't talk about is once you hire those people, if, if you made the right hire, then great. Do what you can to keep them. But you don't always get it right. And I haven't always gotten it right. And that doesn't mean that you fire them. Like, you know, there is a there's a, a third path here, which is I've hired people that do have those traits. OK, they've got all those things that I look for and I do trust them, but they're just not that talented. Right. They're just not that good at their got job. It. Got it. And yeah. that can. um you know, I, I let that person know. I, I try to be very generous about this. And I, I signal to the person, I give them feedback. I give them a chance to try to improve. Because I've been in that boat before where someone felt like I shouldn't be at that company anymore. And I would have sure. appreciated a little bit more grace. Yeah. You know, I, I try to give that person some coaching. And if it doesn't work out, then I, I let them know, you know what? We're going to give you a soft landing. 
I don't, yeah. I'm not going to walk you out the door, but you should start looking for another job. Well, I hope uh, I'll interview you for those next two books, too. So I'll put that on my calendar. I'll be watching for those so you can come on and talk to us more about those. So, again, I guess this Jawad Hassan, his book is What They Didn't Tell Me, How to Be a Resilient Leader and Build Teams You Can Trust. Jawad, do you completely believe that people want to be led? Talk to me about that. I, I do. I think everyone wants to be led to some degree. What I, what I mean by that is people want to be given clear direction. Okay. I think it's human nature. I, I don't think that there are two classes of people. I'm not suggesting that there are people who are leaders and people who are followers. What I'm saying is every single person on earth to some degree wants direction, right? Whether it's like, if you have a Peloton, right? Or I just, I just got this tonal and I, you know, I'm taking, I'm doing exercise on the tonal, uh, I want very clear instruction and the instructors that I gravitate towards are the ones that give very clear instruction on what to do next. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing at work, right? You want to work for someone that, and this is where it's also very important. It's one thing to not be a micromanager, but you can't just keep your hand. You can't take your hands off the wheel, right? Right. You have to Good communicate. Point. You have to over communicate. You have to set a clear vision. You have to help people understand for their particular roles. How does it tie back into your vision? You know, I tell them how it ties into my vision as CFO and how does it tie, how does my vision tie into the overall company's vision? So for example, at Axon, our mission is to make the bullet obsolete. And what we're trying to do by the end of the decade is to bring a taser weapon to the market that's going to outperform a firearm such that when law enforcement needs to stop a threat, they're going to stop shooting people. They're going to reach for their taser instead. Well, it takes a lot of people to pull that off. Mm -hmm. And, Finance has a role in that, right? There, are, We have a corporate strategy team. We have an IT team. We have a legal team. We all have a hand in helping achieve this mission of making the bullet obsolete. And our, our mission really as a company beyond that is to protect life. And so I, you know, we, as an executive team, talk about what our overarching mission is as a company, and then we flow it down from there. And that's a, an important part of you as a leader. What you've got to do is help people understand how is it that what you're doing ties into the overall picture? That, that's really what I mean Mm-hmm. Yeah, he uh, he talking about his company. You can't find that at axon.com. I'm correct there, right? A-X-O-N.com, correct, Juan? Fascinating company. I looked at it. Fascinating. And you're doing fascinating work and apparently having lots of fun do it, doing it. So we need to wrap up, Juan. So what, what did we miss? Um, did I not ask you a question that I should have? Or is there some way that you'd like to wrap it up? You know, I want to wrap up with how we started just going back to the North Star. The thing that I encourage people the most to do is to take control of their own careers. And I know that sounds cliched, but you'd be surprised. When I, so I interview uh, every single person that gets hired into any of my functions at Axon. Every single person, their very last interview is with me. And the first question I ask them is, what's your North Star? Tell me where you're headed in your career. And you'd be surprised how few people have actually thought through that and they can articulate something sort of directional, but very few people are very few people anticipate that question coming and know how to answer it. And I would just, you know, encourage everyone to define their own North star for themselves. And I don't mean just like in the abstract, I mean, write it down. And I'm mm-hmm. very big on the power of visualization. And I, I, I would encourage you to write down your North star, look at it from time to time and really express gratitude for it, right? Like, it, like it's something that's going to happen and think about what do you need to do to get there and work backwards from there. Otherwise, I, you know, I think you're going to be a little listless. 
Yeah, I, I, the words that popped into my mind as I was writing down notes is reverse engineering. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, I didn't say that. It's in my notes, but I didn't say it. But that's basically what we're describing is, you know, where's your North Star? Where do you want to be? What do you aspire to do? And then you work back from there. And I think people, as you indicated when you were at GE, and this happens to a lot of people, you know, maybe the path is laid out for you. Maybe that's a good path. But is it? it's kind of like, you know. Uh, you know, climbing the ladder of success. Well, you might do that. You might get to the top of the ladder and then see that you've got that ladder against the wrong building. So, you know, you, 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 I think that's great, great, great advice. So, again, my guest is Jawad Hassan, J-A-W-A-D. Last name is A-H-A-S-A-N. His book is What They Didn't Tell Me. I strongly recommend this book for leaders at all levels. Um, I think there's things in here that if you've been a leader for however long, uh, I think there's, I know there's lessons in here. You may rethink some things that you say and do. I think it is so powerful for aspiring leaders. And so those are my comments on the book. Jawad, I, uh, I appreciate you taking time to be with us and congratulations, congratulations on your career in writing a great book. Marty, you're, you're too kind. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. Thank you for listening to the Business Builders Show on the Business Builders Media Network. Find all our shows and many other great podcasts at businessbuildersmedia.com. That's businessbuildersmedia.com.